Welcome back. Last week you learned about the parties to crime. And that was when we talked about the principal actor, the, the whodunit person. Um, second, the accomplice, the person who aided or assisted with the commission of the crime by maybe planning or attending in some way. And then third was that accessory, someone who assisted after the fact to help the offender evade arrest, prosecution, or conviction. And these become very useful for this week, as this week is all about inchoate offenses that typically involve multiple parties. All right, so let's dig in. Inchoate offenses are those that are essentially incomplete, meaning that the full crime never actually occurred. Um, I know what you're thinking. But she told us that there always has to be actus reus, that guilty act. And you still kind of do, though. So let's go back to the basics. Most crimes require mens rea, that guilty mind, actus reus, the guilty act, and concurrence, which means that the mens rea and the actus rea occur simultaneously. Now, we've already talked about strict liability crimes that don't require mens rea. You just need the act, remember? Nobody cares whether or not you knew the crime was wrong. There isn't any intent that's necessary. So what about those that don't have a completed criminal act? Do those exist? Yes, the answer is yes here. And those are inchoate offenses, which means that the crime is in like the early stages and has just begun. And it typically means that the crime is incomplete or unfinished. So what kind of crimes are we talking about here? So today we'll go through these. And first we're going to talk about attempt, second conspiracy, and third solicitation. And why do we punish people for inchoate or incomplete types of crimes like these? We do this to deter people from even planning to commit crime. Um, and then be forewarned, proving inchoate offenses can be quite tricky. As remember, the full crime typically was never actually completed. All right, let's dig into attempt crimes first. Attempt crimes are always unfinished crimes. The offender simply attempted to complete it with no avail. So the mens rea for attempt is pretty clear cut. Most state statutes require specific intent, and that's that purposely um, language, to commit the crime. And that makes sense. But what about the actus reus? What is the criminal act? Remember back to chapter four. Thought alone cannot constitute the act. So a defendant does not commit attempt by plotting or planning an offense. And mere preparation is not enough to constitute the attempt criminal act element either. So the main thing that we have to figure out is how close to completing the offense the defendant must get to fulfill the attempted criminal act requirement. To make things complicated in most state statutes and cases, the um, attempt act is loosely defined to allow the trier of fact the flexibility that's needed to separate true criminal attempt from non-criminal type of preparation. Um, and different things or different places do things differently as well. Jurisdictions use four different tests to determine whether the defendant has committed the criminal act um, within attempt. So first is the proximity test. Second is res ipsa liquitor test. Third is probable desistance test. And fourth is the model penal codes substantial steps test. So that first one, let's go over that. That's the proximity test. So the proximity test measures the defendant's progress by examining how close the defendant is to completing the offense. The distance measured is the distance between preparation for the offense and successful termination of it. So it's the amount left to be done, not what has already been done that is going to be assessed for the proximity test. And this generally gets up to right before the full criminal act. So if you want to poison your professor before your exam so you don't have to take it, and you take the steps to buy poison and put it on some cookies and bring it to class, 
only to find out that she's sick and the exam is postponed, you've completed enough of the criminal act for the proximity test, as the only reason the full crime didn't occur was because your professor was sick, and that was outside of your control. Um, also, PSA, please don't try to poison me or any other professors, for that matter. Now, second is the res ipsa liquidor test. This term means the thing speaks for itself. It's also known as the unequivocally or unequivocality test. It means that the facts are obvious and that the actions speak for themselves. So if you bought poison, baked it into cookies, hopped in your car to go to class and have the cookies on a tray that you're holding as you walk through, across campus to your classroom, your actions show no other purpose than committing the crime of poisoning your professor. Again, please don't though. Third is the probable desistance test. This test examines how far the defendant has progressed towards the commission of the crime. So how much has already been done rather than assessing how much the defendant has left to accomplish. So it's basically the opposite of the proximity test. A defendant commits attempt when he or she has crossed a line beyond which it is probable that he or she will not desist. So it's kind of that point of no return, unless there's an eruption from some outside type of source, like law enforcement or circumstances beyond his or her control. So if you made those poison cookies to kill your professor, got to class, and there happened to be a detection dog in class that night that sniffed something funky, you've committed that attempt crime. Fourth is the model penal code substantial steps test. And the substantial steps test is intended to clarify and kind of simplify the attempt act um, assessment to, to prevent it being um, applied in a truly arbitrary way. And it's also beneficial because it classifies as substantial those acts the other tests might consider only preparatory. So the substantial steps test has two prongs. First, the defendant must take substantial steps towards completion of the crime. And the model penal code states a person is guilty of an attempt to commit a crime if he does anything which is an act or omission constituting a substantial step in a course of conduct planned to culminate in his commission of the crime. And then second, the defendant's actions must be strongly corroborative of the actor's criminal purpose. And the model penal code even gives um, seven examples of actions that constitute substantial steps, as long as they're corroborative of the defendant's intent. So the seven examples are if you're like lying and wait, waiting for somebody um, to come and, you know, so you can hurt them, enticing the victim to go to the scene of the crime, investigating the potential scene of the crime beforehand, uh, unlawfully entering a structure or vehicle where the crime is going to be committed, possessing materials that are specifically designed for unlawful use, or possessing, collecting, or fabricating materials to be used in the crime's commission, and soliciting an innocent agent to commit a crime. So it has much more directness. It's a much more direct test. So if you purchase poison for your cookies, look up how to make poison cookies and ask your professor to meet during office hours to bring them poison cookies. Well, um, then you've met this test. So what are the defenses to attempt? Well, failure of proof defenses to the criminal act and criminal intent elements, basically saying that you didn't do it, that's an option. And there's also legal impossibility and voluntary abandonment. So legal impossibility means the defendant believes he or she is attempting to commit a crime, but the defendant's actions are actually legal. So if someone was in California and they thought they were attempting to buy weed illegally because they're from Texas and they didn't realize that it's legal in California now right? Now, as you can tell, yes, this is a defense, but there clearly would be few times that this would really need to be used as arrest shouldn't come up for most of these because what they did was actually legal. 
Next is voluntary abandonment, and this is when the defendant voluntarily and completely withdraws from commission of the offense before it is finished. And there's two parts to this one. First, the defendant must have a change of heart that is not motivated by an increased possibility of detection or a change in circumstance that make the crime's commission just more difficult for them to do. And second, the abandonment must be complete and cannot simply be postponed. So maybe you bought the poison and then you had a change of heart about poisoning your professor, so you never made the cookies and you don't plan to in the future. So that would be a good example here. And thanks for being law-abiding on that one. A few other things to note with attempt. First is merger. So if the crime is completed, attempt charges go away. You just get the crime itself for the charge. Second is transferred intent. Um, so a defendant's criminal intent can transfer from the intended victim to the actual victim in some jurisdictions. So if the intent is transferred, the defendant may be criminally responsible for the completed offense against the eventual victim and for attempted um, against the intended victim. So if you bought or if you brought the poison cookies to class and then your professor takes them home and gives them to her family because she doesn't like sweets, you're responsible for the crime of poisoning the family and attempting to poison the professor. All right, next up is conspiracy. This is where parties to crime come back around, as this requires two or more parties to be involved. Conspiracy punishes defendants for agreeing to commit crimes. Conspiracy is an inchoate crime because it is possible that the defendants won't actually commit the planned defense. However, a conspiracy is complete as soon as defendants become complicit and commit the conspiracy act with the conspiracy intent. So the rationale for punishing defendants for planning activity, which generally is not sufficient to constitute the crime of attempt, is the increased likelihood of success when defendants work together to plot and carry out criminal activity. So we want to try and deter that. Um, if the defendants commit the crime that is the object of the conspiracy, the defendants are responsible for the conspiracy and the completed crime. So you can actually get both charges. So what's the criminal act here? An agreement to commit any criminal offense is the criminal act. It doesn't have to be formal and it doesn't have to be in writing. And in many states and federally, an overt act is also going to be necessary. And that's something that's an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. So the overt act doesn't have to be criminal on its own and maybe just in the planning or the preparatory type of activity. So let's say you and a fellow student decided you wanted to try to get out of that pesky exam by poisoning your professor. As soon as you agree to do it, you've committed that conspiracy criminal act, unless you also still need the overt act. Now, if you also need that, purchasing the poison would also count. Now, what about the guilty mind? Conspiracy may be formed as long as one of the parties has the appropriate intent. And in the majority of jurisdictions, the criminal intent element necessary for conspiracy is specific intent. So purposely, again, um, and you have to do that you, or you have specific intent to agree with another to commit the crime at issue. And the prosecution must prove that the conspirator intended to agree and also intended to commit the underlying offense. So if you and that classmate agree to poison the professor and also intend to, to do so, then you've met this. And it, and similar to accomplice liability, the acquittal of or failure to per prosecute one party to the conspiracy does not relieve the co-conspirator from criminal responsibility. So just because the other conspirator wasn't charged doesn't mean you can't be. 
Another thing that's unique to conspiracy is that a conspirator or a co-conspirator does not need to know every other co-conspirator to be held accountable as a member of the conspiracy. So large-scale conspiracies, especially those conspiracies that pertain to trafficking or distributing of drugs or illegal firearms, may result in each member sharing criminal responsibility for the conspiracy and every separate conspiracy transaction that happened. Um, so there are two basic large-scale conspiracy organizational formats, and there's wheel and chain conspiracy. And a wheel conspiracy consists of a single conspirator, generally what's known as like the kingpin or the ringleader, who's interconnected to every other co-conspirator. The ringleader is kind of that centralized hub of it, and the other co-conspirators are the spokes of the wheel. And an example of the wheel conspiracy would be a mob boss linked to individual members of the mob following his or her commands. Um, a, a chain conspiracy consists of co-conspirators connected to each other like links in a chain, but without a center person um, that's interconnected, right? So we don't have a ringleader necessarily. An example of a chain conspiracy is a conspiracy to manufacture and distribute drugs um, with the manufacturer linked to the transporter who sells to a large quantity dealer who thereafter sells to smaller quality dealers who then are getting that product to the consumer themselves. So whether the conspiracy is wheel, chain, or otherwise, if the jurisdiction has a statute or common law rule that each member does not need to personally know every other member, um, the co-conspirators may be criminally responsible for the conspiracy and the crimes that it furthers. This means that a lot of people can get in trouble within conspiracies and for a lot of things. Um, as many states follow the Pinkerton rule, which states that individuals who enter into a conspiracy are criminally responsible for every reasonably foreseeable crime committed in furtherance of the conspiracy. So, sounds a lot like felony murder from last week, huh? So, a few other things about conspiracy. One, Wharton's rule. Um, a criminal offense that already requires two parties cannot be the object of a conspiracy that consists of two parties. So, you can't use a crime that requires two parties and then charge them with the crime and conspiracy because it's redundant. Second is... Um, renunciation. Um, and this is the affirmative defense that could be used to conspiracy in some jurisdictions. If the defendant voluntarily and completely renounces the conspiracy and thwarts or prevents the crime that's going to occur. So if you and a classmate wanted to poison the professor, but then you want out, you call campus police to let them know, and they're able to apprehend the other classmate when they get to class with the poison cookies. Um, that would be a good example here of how you may not be criminally liable at that point. And then third was merger. So conspiracy typically does not merge into the full completed crime. So this means that you can be charged with both the crime and the conspiracy to commit it. All right, lastly, let's talk about solicitation. Solicitation can be a precursor to conspiracy because it criminalizes the instigation of an agreement to commit a criminal offense. Solicitation is an inchoate crime because it is possible that the conspiracy will never be formed and the crime that is the object will never be committed thereafter. So what's the act here? The criminal act element required for solicitation is generally just words that induce another to commit a crime. Um, and some states only require or only recognize this for felonies, FYI. And then the criminal intent element required for solicitation is, again, specific intent, and we're looking at purposely within that. So if you know a friend who has poisoned professors before and you ask them if they could bake some poison cookies for you, again, then that's where you're falling into having an issue with solicitation. 
And similar to conspiracy, many jurisdictions allow renunciation as an affirmative defense to solicitation. And so that renunciation must be voluntary and complete. And then again, they have to thwart the crime that is solicited. So they have to do something to make it so that it's prevented from actually occurring. Um, one thing to note within this is that with all these crimes, most jurisdictions grade them, quote unquote, grade um, by severity. So lesser crimes are going to be punished less harshly. All right. That was a lot. I know. Have fun digging further into conspiracy crimes for drugs for your discussion this week. And um, until next time, y'all.